0: Good morning. I used to have a friend named Mike. Mike was a super jock in college. And, you know, there's a lot of jocks in college, but Mike was like Arnold Schwarzenegger type of guy mixed with a football helmet. He was the size of a wall with the eyeballs. He was a large man, very intimidating. And Mike, f- frankly, thought he was invincible. In fact, one time he said that if he, if he ever got hit by a bus, he said he hoped that the bus had insurance because that bus was going to get damaged. He was not only um, felt he was invincible, but obviously was very arrogant about his, um, his size and his, his ability um, he he was so mean that I, I had a friend of mine who knew Mike back in those days. I met him later. But a friend of mine who knew Mike back in those days said that, that Mike was so mean that when he first met Mike, he thought Mike was going to kill him and eat him. <laughs> Mike used to run around and, in a Tarzan loincloth and scare freshmen. <laughs> so this is the nature of the... Of the beast as it was, and Mike had the voice to back it up. He was a bass, you know. Hello, my name is Mike. Real loud, low, and frightening. But anyway, um, well, one day after Mike finished college, he went to work on a natural gas rig, and he was working up about, you know, two two stories high. And no mask, you know, on a natural gas rig, no mask. And he all of a sudden got a whiff of some kind of sour gas, and it, it knocked him out. He, he was knocked out cold two stories up, and he was holding a large pipe. And when he fell, somehow that pipe got vertical with him and landed and basically crushed some major vital organs. Mike woke up in the hospital and he was dying. And he, he got really scared and he realized all of a sudden what a fragile man he was, that he wasn't invincible like he thought he was. And he got really scared because he realized he was dying and he figured that he was going to hell, but he didn't want to pray to God. He had no interest in God prior to this, but, and he didn't want to pray to God in order not to make the devil mad because he knew he was going to hell. But he he decided that it was worth the risk, and he prayed very simply, God, if you're there, help me. Well, he did survive and recovered and began seeking God and became a Christian. I met Mike in seminary, at Dallas Seminary, and we did a skit together. It's funny how his life was transformed. We did a skit together with a few others in one of our classes, and it was the – the the part in the book of acts where the apostle peter heals the lame man and uh mike played peter and there was one scene one part of it where uh, i think it was in one of dr hendrick's classes anyway dr hendrick says you know mike or peter you, you tell him you know you're going to tell this person to get up and mike said i'm telling you to get up <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious and this uh and a couple of us just said, Mike, Mike, it's okay. It's just a skit. It's just a skit. Everything's fine. I'm telling you to get up. And it was funny, this poor little, little woman was playing the lame man, and she just oh, was absolutely mortified when Mike hollered at her. And it was kind of frightening, actually. But Mike accepted Christ, and people who knew Mike beforehand could not believe that it was the same man afterwards. Because, and, and to Mike's credit, of course, as soon as he did that, he was very broken that he had scared this young woman. And the skit all of a sudden paused, and Mike was very tender and apologized that he had scared this, this lady. Whereas before, he was running around terrifying freshman in a loincloth. Completely different man. This is what the grace of God can do to anybody to anybody. And often God will change the lives of the worst to give those who aren't quite that bad some hope for those who've not yet changed. The Apostle Paul said as he was writing to Timothy, he said that God had grace on me, the worst of all, in order to show the extent of His grace. Well, let's look together at 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2 we're going to see how the word of god has a great transforming power on our lives not only the lives of others we've spent several times together several weeks so far in second peter and just kind of by way of review you'll remember in chapter 1 peter tells us that the foundation of our faith, the foundation of our life as a Christian is faith in Jesus Christ. He tells us that we're to add to this faith a number of qualities, and he lists these qualities that we're to add to our faith. And then he tells us that if we're very diligent to add to these, that that we won't go backwards, we'll go forward that if these qualities are yours, he says there in verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter tells us time and time again throughout this book, he is giving us the basics. He is reminding us of the essentials so that we don't forget. Because in the Christian life, when you stumble and fall, It's because, not because you've gotten off on some little tangent of theology. When you see people who have fallen in the Christian life, or maybe even you yourself have stumbled in some way, if you look back and evaluate it, you realize that it happened because you lost sight of the basics, not because uh, you didn't grow out to this particular extreme, but because you didn't stay faithful to the basics that you knew. This is why Peter tells us, uh, verse, verse 12 in chapter 1, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. Verse 13, I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly, earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. And one of the things he teaches or has taught us so far about uh, our Christian life is that the Word of God has to be our anchor. It has to be what we cling to each day because uh, otherwise we'll wander. And we're gonna see that as we continue in chapter two. Last time we saw in chapter two as we began, Peter said not only were there true prophets who gave us the Bible but there were also false prophets and there will be false prophets now. These false prophets are those who will introduce secret destructive heresies. And you remember as we walked through this last time, uh, Peter tells us that not only are these false prophets wrong, but they're going to be judged by God. And just because they're not judged now doesn't mean they won't be judged. Peter gave several examples. God's never been soft on sin. He gave the example of angels that fell, of the flood, the global destruction, and of local destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he also, Peter also gave some examples of of righteous people that God delivered from those judgments, like Lot was taken out of Sodom, like Noah and his family were taken out of the flood. And so we are also, he says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly, verse 9, from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So he continues talking about these uh, these false teachers, and in doing so, we're going to see some really great lessons from a really, bad example. So let's begin, we stopped last time about halfway through verse 10, so look up halfway through verse 10, and we'll start there. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Now whenever you read a passage of Scripture, whenever we look at the Scripture, we don't want to just read the Bible, slam it shut, check our box on our reading program, and move, move on throughout the day. We want to look and say, how does this apply? How can I glean a principle from this text that will make a difference in my Tuesday morning? This is a great, great example. Uh, the second half of Second Peter 2, because Peter just rails on these false teachers. And other than going, amen, Peter, how can we apply this to our lives? Well there's a series of questions that you could ask. For example, if you look in a passage, you could ask, is there a command to obey? Is there a sin to confess? Is there a habit to change? is there a, a, a truth to believe? Is there an example to follow? There's a number of questions. But the question that we want to ask in this case is, is there an error to avoid? Is there an error or a danger to avoid? To avoid? And we're going to see them left and right. In fact, there are six dangers or six errors of these false teachers, that if we flip it on its head, it can become a very positive lesson for us. Great lessons from a really bad example. And the first we've read here in 10 and 11 is that these false teachers are self-willed. They are self-willed. Peter says they do what they want, regardless of God's Word. That's what self-willed means, that you're doing what you want to do. You're not doing what God wants to do, you're doing what you want to do. And the, particularly, the example is given is that they're not afraid to speak against, against angelic majesties. Probably, it's a reference to demons. Peter says, not even angels, meaning holy angels, go that far and are that presumptuous to take the place of God. The book of Jude, I think we mentioned this some weeks ago, but the book of Jude is similar in this uh, part of the book of 2 Peter. In fact, it's not terribly clear who got what from whom. It's like some of the Gospels sort of are, seem repetitious, but really they're reinforcing. One doesn't undermine the other. One supports the other. And so Jude sort of adds on to this, as it were, and says, not even Michael the archangel, is presumptuous enough to rebuke Satan, but says the Lord rebuke you. And yet Peter says these false teachers, they're daring and self-willed, they don't think twice about reviling demons. When nowhere in the scriptures outside of Jesus commissioning the apostles do we see us as Christians given the command or the expectation to go toe-to-toe with Satan. (laughs) Instead, we're told, Peter's told, told us uh, in First Peter chapter 5, uh, resist him by being faithful, firm in your faith. So these guys are basically putting themselves in the place of God. Peter describes them as self-willed. So when we flip that on its head, for us, the example, uh, the application to follow is to submit ourselves to God and, and not to be self-willed. But to be like Christ in Gethsemane who says, Lord, here's my request, but not my will, but yours be done. So that's number one. They're self-willed. Look at verse 12 as we look at the next one. Peter writes, but these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong." Now let's pause there in that verse. Creatures of instinct. This is the second quality of these false teachers, their second bad example. They're creatures of instinct. When I was in college, my roommate uh, Vince lived with me, obviously, roommate, and uh, my dog Sam, whom I've mentioned before, uh, lived with us too. And Sam, was ruled by her stomach. She's a Labrador. And if you want a great laugh, in fact, just this morning, I looked to see if I could find a, a good short example. There weren't any that were short. But I looked uh, on YouTube to try to find an example of dogs sneaking food. Have you ever had a dog steal food? Or like you come home and the kitchen is like a wreck? What happened in here? Well, your dog took advantage of the fact that you left it in the house unmonitored and went through your cabinets. Dogs are smart, especially Labradors. And Labradors, um, well, anyway, if you want a good laugh, look up, like, dogs sneaking food or something like that. There was one that's hilarious. But anyway, to my story. Um, Vince made himself a big sandwich and sticks it on on the dining room table. You know, we're talking up four feet. Uh, Forty inches, I guess, is a table height. And so um, then he leaves to go get a drink. Comes back just in time to see Sam's head up on the table, biting that sandwich and pulling it off. And he told me about that, and I thought, well, Vince, you know, that's a lesson you only, only have to learn once. <laughs> because that's, that's Sam. She is a creature of instinct. She is guided by her stomach. And if you stick food in front of a dog, a dog's going to go for it. The dog's not going to stop and have self-control and think about the ramifications of it. <laughs> but it's hilarious, though, to look at some of these videos, or even you remember in your life, uh, your experience about when you shame a dog, to look at their poor little faces. You know, you feel so sorry for them. They, um, you know, they, they, they kind of look sad, or they won't even look at you, you know, they'll just kind of look away. <laughs> It's like, why don't you think about the shame you're feeling now in the moment of temptation? Because it's a creature of instinct, that's why. Well, God's given us the ability to look beyond the immediate and to consider the long-term ramifications of our actions. We're not creatures of instinct. In addition to the natural, human, even fleshly, sinful desires that we have within us, we also have, along with that nature, a new nature. The Holy Spirit lives within us and comes right alongside and often speaks against those things or to those things. Probably without exception, any time we've chosen to sin, and by that I'm talking about a sin where we made the choice, it wasn't just, you know, a knee-jerk reaction that we didn't even think twice about it. But I'm talking about most of the time when we're given the, the opportunity to sin, the moment before. Or after we consider that, we can feel the Spirit of God tapping us on the shoulder. And we'll ignore it, or we'll listen to it. But the fact is, creatures of instinct don't have those taps on the shoulder. We do. The Lord's given us the, the ability to look beyond the immediate to the long term. We've got the desire for the forbidden fruit, don't we? And forbidden fruit grows everywhere, and it's there for the picking. But we understand why it's forbidden. It's not forbidden, contrary to what the world and the devil want us to believe, that God is restricting our lives. But it's forbidden because God's saving our lives. We put fences around playgrounds not to keep children from being all they can be. We do it to keep them from running out in the street and getting hit. It's to protect them, and this is why the Lord gives us restrictions, not to restrict alone, but to protect. It takes the Spirit of God to remember that in the moment of temptation, but these false teachers are creatures of instinct. They don't even think twice about that. We stopped halfway through verse 13, let's continue there. Suffering the wrong is doing wages of wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes. Reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children." Boy, Peter's really laying it on, isn't he? He's saying it like it is. The word here for, uh, if you look in verse 13. I love it in, in this, these particular verses. The Greek really gives us some nice insight. But the word here for pleasure there in verse 13, they count it a pleasure. The word in the New Testament always has a sensual or a sexual uh, connotation. The phrase having eyes full of adultery is literally having eyes full of an adulteress. In other words, when, when they look at a woman, this is all they think about. Um, they never cease means basically, they can't stop. It's almost like an addiction. The word for "entice" is the word used of baiting a trap. They entice uh, unstable souls. In other words, they hold out, you know what uh, something that can lure them in, but there's a hook in it, and the hook, they hope, brings about this immoral result. The word here for unstable, they entice unstable souls. The word for unstable means something that lacks a good foundation, which if, if you remember the context of what Peter, why Peter's telling us about these false teachers, is because he's warning us, here's why you want to know the Bible. Here's why you want to grow in your walk with Jesus Christ, because if you don't, you can be one of these unstable souls without a good foundation. But if you have a good foundation in the truth and in the Word of God, you'll be able to recognize, ah, there's a hook in what you're saying. There's, that's just bait. I know the reality behind that. That's just, that's just a, a facade. Uh, I'll never forget my family uh, went to uh, California many, many years ago back when I was a teenager, I say many, many years ago because the older I get, the truer that is. Seems like a long time ago. Anyway, I was a teenager. We went to Universal Studios and we walked, we, driving around through all these places. We even saw where the, the Psycho House is. Remember the Psycho House it's up there on the hill? It looks just as spooky in real life as it did in the movies. But all these, all these, uh, all these facades are there, and yet you walk inside, and it's just a wall propped up with two-by-fours. Yet on the outside, it looks real, but on the inside, it's just as fake as can be. They had a, um, a foam rock that was almost as big as this little lectern here that I could pick up, and it looked like a real rock. It made a great picture. You know, I should have brought the picture to you. I look like Mike. But the point is, That's what these false teachers do, and that's what some people will do in our lives. They come up with propped up two-by-four walls that look real, and the reality is if we don't have a good foundation in the Word of God, we will be unstable souls, and we will be susceptible to their lies and to the hook that's behind the bait. Peter continues, verse 15, forsaking the right way. They've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Oh, you could tell Peter's got a sense of humor just to bring that illustration up, which is a, is a great reminder to us about uh, Balaam. Remember Balaam in the in the book of Numbers. This is the guy who, the king of Moab. This is the time when the Hebrews were coming up. They were about to enter the land. They'd come around underneath, uh, uh, all the way down to the Red Sea. Come all the way up on the the east side of the the southeast side of the Dead Sea. And now they were standing in the area of the plains of Moab. They were all camped there, and on top of Mount Nebo or a couple other names as well, Balaam stood up there in the very mountain where Moses would go up and take his first and last look at the Promised Land, Balaam was there and was told, was counseled by the king of Moab to curse the Hebrews, to, to bring a curse upon them because their reputation had preceded them. This is the, the people whose God had parted the Red Sea. And Balak says, I don't want them anywhere close to me, and hired Balaam, this prophet, to come and curse the Hebrews. And Balaam initially went, but he went under the guise of, well, I can only say what God tells me to say. Well, we know from Peter that Balaam's motive was impure. And the Lord, um, it's wonderful to read Balaam's story. The punchline of it, basically, as we're given here. Peter tells us that a mute donkey rebuked Balaam. And it says here, speaking with the voice of a man, that the word there for man isn't the word for male, it's the word for human. The vo- a human voice is what Peter means. In fact, Balaam's donkey was female. And I don't know if God honored that in voice, but wouldn't that have been fun? Balaam's riding his donkey, and all of a sudden in a woman's voice, Balaam, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would have been great. <laughs> What's even funnier is that Balaam answers. He starts talking, it's like, Don't you see, Balaam, this doesn't usually happen. Anyway, but Balaam is rebuked by a mute donkey. A donkey speaking with the voice of a human restrained the madness of the prophet. Uh, Balaam was was disobedient to God. Proverbs 4:25 says let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Peter wrote here that they forsaking the right way. Uh, literally the the Greek says that the way is the straight way. It's the the it's for, forsaking what is straight. Forsaking the the right way. They veered off the path. They're on the highway but they took the exit. The illustration is rather than keeping focused on the Lord and what is right and what his word says, you get distracted and you, get, you veered off and now you're off in some pasture or something. And he gives the example here of Balaam. Jesus Christ said we can't serve two masters, God or money. And these false teachers are illustrating that fourth um, – the fourth quality of, that Peter is, is berating, and that is, that is that they're greedy. They're greedy for money, like Balaam was. That's the fourth one. Jesus said we can't serve two masters, both God and money. Our world chases it, doesn't it? And we live in a capitalistic society that does all it can to push us in that direction. And in some sense, the sky's the limit. I mean, we live in a country where the sky is the limit as far as what you earn. If you want to work hard enough, you want to get the education, if you want to blank, 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 just to consider, continue, you can get rich, as it were. The sky's the limit. But that's not the goal. Don't get off the goal. Jesus said you can serve God, or you can get distracted off that way, and you can serve money. doesn't mean that God doesn't have anybody, that God doesn't have people that don't have money. It means... What's your devotion? What is your first devotion? It's a hard question to answer. Let's continue. Verse 17. Peter says, These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. The fifth quality is that they are slaves of sin. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 24, he said, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And the, the meaning there is habitually. Paul wrote a similar thing in Romans chapter 6 when he said that we are the slaves of the one we obey, either righteousness or of sin. These false teachers are like this. And they promise freedom. Here's the irony. They promise freedom, but they don't have it themselves. They don't have it to give it. They promise something that they can't deliver on. They promise freedom, but they can't deliver. Keep your finger here if you would in 2nd Peter and flip back to Proverbs chapter 25. Look at Proverbs 25 for just a moment. Peter is probably paraphrasing or has this in mind as he writes this verse that we just read. Proverbs 25 down in verse 14. Solomon says this, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. To boast of your gifts doesn't mean, um, hey, I'm a gifted singer. That's not what that means. It means to boast of gifts. In fact, I think if you look in the margin, literally a gift of falsehood. Meaning, you're promising something, you're promising a gift, but you never mean to give it, and that fits because, like a cloud, like clouds and wind, but no rain. You got a, a storm cloud up there that doesn't rain. What's the point? It's boasting. A cloud and wind should produce rain. A person who boasts of his gifts should produce the gift, but they don't. This is this is what. Peter has in mind a leader or the, these false teachers who make promises that they can't keep. They can't deliver on it. It's sort of like the prosperity gospel of preachers today. You know, if you give God $100 or whatever, whatever it is, then God will give you, you know, even more. What a great investment financially. Well, except that it doesn't work, it's, it's a cloud without rain. Keep your finger or a, your, uh, a bulletin or something there in Proverbs 24 because we're going to come back to it, but then look back now at Second Peter 2. False teachers promise, but they don't deliver because why? They are slaves of sin. I remember years ago in April that I started – I just began to notice how often I would eat sweets walk, you know, we'd go to my grandmother's house or we'd go to, uh, uh, we'd be in a a buffet line or something, and if there was a dessert, well, there's a dessert, I'll eat it. Or if we're walking, you know, through someone's house and there's a plate of cookies that's obviously there for people to enjoy, why not have one? And I just began to notice just the impulse or the impulsivity of my reaction to sweets. It's there, so I'll eat it. And so I thought, you know what, and I know it was April because I decided for the month of May, I'm not going to have any sweets. I just thought, this is ridiculous. I am not going to be ruled by my body, I'm going to rule my body. Well May is one of those months with 31 days. (laughs) Why don't I choose February or something for this, this event? And I just thought, I decided, I put myself to a little test. And May, you know, is my anniversary, it's that that month also, and it's also usually when Kathy's family has family reunion. Family reunion. You've got these wonderful East Texas ladies that bring pies. Acres and acres of pies. (laughs) And any kind of pecan pie that you want. And I thought, why did I make this stupid promise to myself? And, uh, you know, the pies were there mocking me from the table, just daring me. And I, and I didn't have one, and I'll, honestly, I made it through May, but I'll tell you what, June 1st, <laughs> I caught up. But it was terrible. And I guess what was terrible about it is I didn't realize, I surprised how many opportunities I had. When you start saying no, you start realizing how many opportunities there are to say yes. But when you're saying yes, you don't realize how often it's happening. It works that way with more than pecan pie, too. It works that way with faithfulness. Often I think we're deceived into doing something because we think, eh, just this once. It's no big deal. Just this once. Until all of a sudden just this once has become a stack of bricks that's built a wall that's really hard. or. Just this once, it's just one shovel full of dirt, and the next thing you know, you've dug a hole that you're in that's 20 feet deep. And the problem often is, as that metaphor goes, you can't get out of a hole the 20 feet deep that you've dug one step at a time immediately. It takes, it takes work. Just bit by bit, it seems easy to find yourself in a trap that becomes very hard to get out of, if not bit by bit as well. So the secret is, don't take the first step. And if you have taken the first step, turn around and start taking the first step in the other direction. Satan would want you to think there's too much water under the bridge. Just forget it. Already, You've already spent so many years you know, doing the wrong thing. Just forget it. It's way too hard to start doing the right thing. But it's never too late to start doing the right thing as difficult and as hard as it is. These false teachers promised freedom, but they can't deliver it because they don't have it themselves. And the reason they can't deliver it is because they don't have God. You know what? If we didn't have God, we couldn't get out of the hole. We got into the hole without God. (laughs) But we can only get out of the hole with the Lord. The Lord is the only way that we can walk faithfully with him. Okay, you've still got your spot there in Proverbs 24. Um, well, I'm not quite ready to go back there. I'm just making sure you still got your spot. Okay. Let's look at verse 20, and let's, let's plod on here with Peter. He says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Here's the final the final um, bad example, as it were. They are unresponsive to spiritual things. They're unresponsive to Jesus Christ. When Peter says that these false teachers have escaped the defilements of the world, he doesn't mean that they are saved. He doesn't mean that they have had their sins forgiven. He's talking about a reference to behavior, not to belief, behavior, not belief. Peter's saying that in escaping the defilements, they've basically cleaned up their life, or they've sort of, you know, gotten all dressed up, they got the tie on, they look the part. But the reality is nothing has changed on the inside. The word that he uses here for knowledge that they, they, uh, in verse 20, he says, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ doesn't require a relationship, that word knowledge. It can be used in that sense, but it doesn't require it. Peter has used it in that sense regarding our walk with God. Um, Back in chapter 1, verse 1, those who have received a, uh, let's see, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. There, that word is used in, con- in this, the similar context of a walk with him. But it's, it's you have a true knowledge that can lead one of two directions. All Peter is saying is that these false teachers clearly understood the gospel. They clearly understood that their sin held them culpable, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, and that if they were to believe, their sins would be forgiven. The problem is the only thing that changed was their behavior, not their belief. The word for knowledge could simply mean a recognition of the truth, not an acceptance of the truth. Because remember, we're told back in verse 1, look look back in verse 1, we're told that these false teachers denied the master who bought them. They denied the master who bought them. So Jesus died for their sins, and they know it, but they still reject him. They denied him. So we're talking about a knowledge that was a recognition of the gospel, but they denied Jesus Christ. And so when Peter says that they are once again entangled in the bad behavior of the world, they are overcome with that behavior. Like, uh, like the verse before, he says, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome by this, he is enslaved. They have actively rebelled against the true knowledge of Jesus Christ, and they have actively submitted instead to living a life that dishonors him. They've been overcome by it. And then when Peter writes this, he says, the last state has become worse for them than the first. He probably has in mind what Jesus meant when he said that. Remember the case when, when Jesus talks about, he gave the illustration of a demon. When a demon comes out of a person, it wanders here and there in arid places, and when it comes back, it founds the house clean, swept in order, and it brings more demons even worse than him. And the last state is worse than the first. Jesus' point there is, if a life gets cleaned up, that life has to be filled with something. If, if, if you leave a hole that sin was once lord of someone's life and now you remove that, that has to be replaced with something or something can come back and it could be even worse. If in your life, if you simply just clean it up without trusting Jesus Christ, it could be that when sin comes back to visit you, as it were, it could be, it can get even worse. And this is the illustration that Peter gives. And he gives us a nice, um, a couple of illustrations of this in the next couple of verses. In fact, again, Peter pulls out the the funny card. Look at verse 21. He says, "For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its vomit, and a sow after washing" returns to wallowing in the mire." In other words, the reason that they came back and did what they did is because they weren't really converted. A dog does what a dog does, no matter what. You can feed a dog filet mignon and the dog's going, man, I'm not eating anything but this for the rest of my life. No, a dog's still going to go back to its vomit because it's a dog. A dog has that in its nature. A pig, you can get the thing all shiny, buttered buttered up and clean, but the thing's going to go back even after you've cleaned it. It's going to go back and wallow because it's a pig. A person who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ can get all cleaned up, can make a commitment to to live a holy life as it were, but if you don't have the power of God within you to make that commitment stick, then you're going to come right back of the life that you had before, and it might even get worse. This is Peter's point. And when Jesus, when he says that the last state has become worse than the first, it's the idea that they will receive very likely a worse punishment because they knew the truth and rejected it. It's like what Christ said about those cities, Bethsaida and Capernaum and Chorazin. The cities that he did most of his miracles. He said that because I did most of my miracles in these cities and yet they didn't repent, the judgment that you guys are going to receive is going to be worse than the judgment that Sodom gets. Wow. Think about that. Why? Because these cities had greater revelation. They had had greater revelation and thus a greater responsibility. And that's the point, is that with greater revelation comes greater responsibility. And so, here's the good news and the bad news of that, and we'll see as Chuck gets into James later on in James where he says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because we who teach will be judged more strictly. I hate that verse. <laughs> but you know why? It's because teachers often learn more. Because by nature of having to teach, we're, we're forced to go deeper in study. And that gives us more revelation, as it were, and thus more responsibility to live it. That's why teachers, honestly, are some of the greatest hypocrites, because who can live up to all that? Only Christ. The point is simply this, that with greater revelation comes greater condemnation, and these false teachers, um, they knew the truth. But Peter said it would have been better if they didn't know it. Because they're going to have, if you'll pardon the, the phrase, a hotter spot in hell. Greater condemnation. Okay, now, Proverbs. Turn back to Proverbs 26. Peter is quoting from, uh, I said Proverbs 25, turn one chapter over, he's quoting Proverbs 26, verse 11. Look at Proverbs twenty-six, eleven. He says, "'Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly.'" This is what Peter's quoting. The word here for fool is the Hebrew word kasil. It's the most common word used for fool in Proverbs. Proverbs talks about fools a lot. There's a number of Hebrew words that are used throughout it, but kasil is the most common word, and it doesn't necessarily mean someone who isn't that sharp. It's, It's not talking about what your mental ability, it's talking about your moral decision proverbs when it speaks of a fool it speaks of a person's chosen outlook not his mental capability and so a fool who repeats his folly is called that because it's what he chooses it's what he chooses just like a dog it goes back to his vomit So this is – Peter's giving this example. And then he mentions the sow as well, which isn't a biblical proverb. It's more one that was uh, familiar in Peter's day. So with these six bad examples, Peter basically contrasts the knowledge of Christ. Remember, 2 Peter is one thought. It's not a bunch of chopped up messages that that his readers would, would hear on Sunday morning like we do. It was one thought. And this would have been a strong contrast of what we studied in Chapter 1. You've got these six qualities that are true of the false teacher in direct contrast to the six qualities that we're to add to our faith. And we won't take the time to do it now, but if you want to do it, you can trace each of these, these false qualities and you can find almost a mirror image, or I should say a direct contrast in what we should be walking and adding to our faith. So just by way of conclusion, let's go back to chapter 1 and let me just read those verses. And I hope that you'll see some direct contradiction, some direct contrast, I should say, to these false teachers to what we are to be. The knowledge of God did nothing for them, but as in contrast for us, chapter 1 starting in verse 2. by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. Your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope you see a great contrast there. The false teachers didn't have faith. Peter says, add to your faith. The false teachers didn't have it increasing. Instead, they went back to wallowing in the mire. See the difference? Peter's saying the true knowledge of Christ is going to go one of two two directions. Those of us who believe, we're going to keep growing. Those who don't are going to go back to the, to the life that it was before. And let me encourage you. You may be thinking, wow, so I wonder if I'm saved, because I still do some of the stuff I did before I was a Christian. In fact, I've done it for years. Peter says "If these qualities are yours and are increasing. He doesn't say, if you got it all nailed. So take courage. We see Peter failing time and time again in the book of Acts, so be encouraged. The goal is direction, not speed. Goal is direction, not speed. Let's pray. Our Father, we all, like my friend Mike, are creatures of instinct and desperately lost apart from your grace but thank you that you reached down into his life and you reached into our lives with the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. And whether it was a fall from a natural gas rig or whatever the crisis was that brought us to faith, even if it was as a child, the blinders just going up and realizing our sin and culpability before you, we thank you. And Father, we pray for any who might be here today that for whatever reason, Life and years have gone by, and there's been no honest commitment, no true faith and belief in Jesus Christ as the one who died on the cross to completely pay for their sins. Father, we pray that they might simply say, as Mike did there on the bed, Lord, save me. And you will. And help the rest of us, Father, as we plod on day by day, year by year, that the qualities here would be ours and would be increasing, that we would be fruitful and give honor to Jesus until he comes. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.